I was thinking we would be outside tonight, and I was thinking there would be some community involvement, and a lot of people in the community might be there. And so I planned a message that's fairly basic, and I, I think that's fine, that's okay. Uh, fairly basic, something that some of you who have gone through new members' classes have heard before, um, maybe not in the detail that uh, I'll go into it tonight. But looking at Joe's series during the summer, I thought this would fit in very well as we took a look at the Scripture and understood what a great thing God has done for us when He gave us His Word, and uh, how unique the Bible is, and how well prepared each one of us should be when we're speaking to folks and looking for ammunition to try to help to turn them to Christ. And it's all here in His Word. It's everything that we need, always. It's the true authority. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank you for the written word. Thank you for the living word, the Lord Jesus. And thank you that with that dynamite combination, you've revealed yourself to us. You've told us everything that we need to know about you and about how to live a life that would please you and how to live a life where people could see the Lord Jesus living within those of us who are believers. So I pray that you would refresh us tonight, a simple message, but one that would help us to each one rejoice anew and afresh in the uniqueness of your word. There's nothing like it anywhere, and it all points to you. And we thank you for this now, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, the uniqueness of the Bible, and we will be getting to Nehemiah, but it won't be toward, till the, uh, toward the middle of the message. So what I'd like to do is to ask you to imagine something. Imagine you're in the process of telling someone about the Lord Jesus. You're looking for an opportunity, and you say something, and you quote a verse, and the person says back to you, that, you know what, you keep quoting these Bible verses. I don't believe the Bible. You're going to have to convince me of what you're trying to convince me of by using something other than the Bible because it's useless for you to pursue this. I really don't know the Bible and I don't believe the Bible. And you feel like you're kind of stuck. You're on the defensive. Now what do I do? If I can't use the Bible, if I can't use the best weapon that I do have, then I feel kind of powerless you can't force someone to believe that the Bible is inspired or inerrant or infallible. You can't force anybody to do that. But what you can do to any kind of a skeptic with regard to the Scripture, you can point out some of the uniqueness of the Bible. You can point out the fact that there is no piece of literature that has ever been produced that is like the Bible. You can point out to them that the Bible stands absolutely alone of all the pieces of literature from the beginning of the time when people could read up until this moment. The Bible is absolutely unique. There's a very helpful book that I like to recommend, although it's old. Evidence that demands a verdict by Josh McDowell. It was written first in 1972, and there have been several editions since then. The only thing that is lacking in the book is some of the latest statistics, but it's as good as anyone around that I've ever found, and particularly a chapter on the uniqueness of the Bible, the best that I've ever read. And I will draw on that uh, from time to time as we go through tonight. I'd like to share with you what I consider the top 10 evidences that point to the uniqueness of the Bible. So we'll take a look at the top 10 of them. Looking at an acronym... If you like acronyms, I always like any memory device, and more and more, the older you get, you like to have those. The word scriptures, and using that acronym helps us to remember some of the unique points about the Bible. And the first one of them has to do with the survival through time. 
the survival through time. The Bible was written over a 15, excuse me, over a 3,500 year period. And it was written on paper that perishes. It was copied and it was recopied for hundreds of years before the invention of the printing press. And some would say, well, wait a minute, that means that it's probably suspect if that's the case. There are people writing it down and people are fallible and they're going to make a lot of mistakes. But if you compare the Bible with other ancient writings, there is a lot of evidence that, because there are a lot of manuscripts of the Bible and you can compare them with each other and you can make sure of the fact that they're identical in so many respects, these manuscripts, as you compare them. There are many centuries of potential destruction through time, decay, neglect, disuse, and misuse, corruption becoming out of date, and yet the Bible remains intact, and the scholars will assure us of that. Take William Shakespeare, and William Shakespeare, for those of you that remember him, 1564 through 1616 were his time when he was here on this earth. Here's what they say about Shakespeare's writings. With a few exceptions, the text of every New Testament verse may be said to be settled by general consent of scholars. In every one of Shakespeare's 37 plays, there are still a hundred readings in dispute a large number of which materially affect the meaning of the passages in which they occur. We're talking about the Bible. We're talking about something that we go back to the first and second century after the Lord Jesus. We see the things that are getting accumulated and compiled. And now we're coming 1,500 years beyond that, and we're finding out that William Shakespeare in his 37 plays, you take a look at them, there are hundreds of disputed passages in every one of those plays that materially, as it says here, affect the reading of that play. He could have been saying almost anything in some of those plays, depending on which ones that you get, which ones that you're able to receive. So that's just simply one evidence of the survival of the Bible over a period of time. Some of you know the name A.T. Robertson. He's the author of the most comprehensive grammar of New Testament Greek. And he wrote this, there are some 8,000 manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate and at least 1,000 for the other early versions. Add over 4,000 Greek manuscripts and we have 13,000 manuscript copies of portions of the New Testament. Besides all this, much of the New Testament can be reproduced from the quotations of the early Christian writers many of whom would include large portions of the Scripture as I knew it then. And when you compare all of these things, the comparison is vivid in its imagery of what's true in the Scriptures. Jews preserved the Bible, and if, if we took a long time to describe this, some of you have heard a long description of this. They, described, they, they uh, preserved it as no other manuscript has ever been preserved. They would read and they would have somebody else uh, that, that, excuse me, they would write and they would have somebody else read it and they would count not just the number of words or pages, every letter, every syllable, every word, every paragraph. They had special classes of individuals within their culture. Their whole duty, their sole duty, was to preserve and transmit these documents with practically perfect fidelity. They were called scribes and they were called lawyers at that time or the Masoretes. Whoever counted the letters and syllables in the words of Plato or Aristotle 
or Cicero or Seneca or anyone else from ancient times or medieval times or even times closer to our own before we had the computers that are available today to do that kind of thing. So what an amazing thing. They wanted to be sure that when they got to the end of a page that one reader would be able to say, yes, we have this number of syllables, and the person would say, yes, that squares with what I have. And then somebody else would also do the same thing, and they would make sure that the Bible was as accurate as it possibly could be. That's survival through time. Is that unique? Does that make the Bible unique? Uh, probably it does all by itself because no other book or no other piece of literature from that time could make that claim. If we're looking at C in our outline, that would be circulation. The Bible has been read by more people and it's been published in more languages than any other book. In fact, no book can come close to comparing with the circulation of the Bible over a long period of time. The Bible has had more copies of it as a whole book and more portions and collections than any other book in history. I read somewhere not too long ago that there were six billion Bibles that have been produced all the time and continue to be produced all the time. We've got people like Gideons and the American Bible Society who are in the process of making sure that there are Bibles in the hotel and the motel rooms and that the Bible is everywhere they don't do that with just any piece of literature. That's something that speaks to the uniqueness of the Scripture as well. The revealed prophecies in the Bible, as we're continuing down our acronym, um, the, the revealed prophecies, unique in the Bible. It's the only volume ever produced by a human being or a group of humans in which is to be found a large body of prophecies relating to and not just Jesus, we think it's Jesus, but there's a lot about Jesus, but relating to individual nations, to Israel, to all the peoples of the earth, to certain cities, and then to the coming of the one who was Messiah, the Lord Jesus himself. There was a scientist, and Josh McDowell mentions this in his book, and I'd love to quote this, you've probably heard me say this before, scientist by the name of Peter Stoner, and he did this in a fair mathematical way, he took eight select prophecies, and some of these prophecies had some corollaries that were from them. He took eight select prophecies, and he found that the chances of these prophecies being fulfilled by accident or coincidentally were one in 10 to the 17th power. And Howard's going to show us what that looks like. One in 10 to the 17th power. That's a lot of zeros that are there, and it's hard for us to comprehend that. So he illustrated it. He said, and I'm going to illustrate it a little bit differently, but supposing I were to say this to you, that the chance, or, or what, what the number 1 in 10 to the 17th power looks like, would be if we took silver dollars and we put them two feet deep. Now, would you be impressed if I told you that we could fill this entire sanctuary with silver dollars two feet deep, and that would be the chances of 1 in 10 to the 17th power? Would you be impressed if I said that? You mark one of those silver dollars and blindfold yourself and your chance of picking the one that is marked out of two feet deep all over the sanctuary here, uh, that's a big number. Would you be impressed with that? Okay, well, we were going to be in the park and I was going to say, not here now. Let's say we do two feet deep in the park across the street. 
and mark a silver dollar, and we've got two feet deep of silver dollars there, would you be impressed even more if that's what one in 10 to the 17th power looks like? Well, here's what Peter Stoner said. Take the state of Texas and fill it two feet deep with silver dollars. And one in 10 to the 17th power is your chance of getting that marked silver dollar somewhere in the state of Texas. If you're dropped off by helicopter, blindfolded, and you pick the right one two feet deep out of Texas. How many of you have been to Texas? It's a pretty big place, isn't it? We drove through a part of Texas, and it was unbelievable. But that's what uh, Peter Stoner said with regard to revealed prophecies. That's eight of them. Eight select prophecies, one in 10 to the 17th power. But he also went on to say, well, let's take not just eight, but let's take 48 select prophecies. And then he said, well, that is one in 10 to the 157th power. And Howard's about to show us the zeros that are involved with that. Want me to illustrate it? Want me to illustrate with silver dollars? I can't. I can't. There's no place that would contain all of those silver dollars. I would have to illustrate it using protons and electrons and things that we can't even see in order for it to be able to fit into something that we can relate to. Uh, that certainly sounds like something that is very, very unique, especially we're talking about 48 prophecies. Now, there were more than 300 prophecies just about Jesus alone. Now, when we think in terms of that, there are a lot of other prophecies about people, places, and things. There were seven specific prophecies in Ezekiel 26 about the fall of Tyre. For that to happen coincidentally, the odds would be one in 400 million for that one. Prophecies about Nineveh and Babylon, the odds for that would be one in 100 billion. About the regathering of the Jews, the Jewish state in 1948, uh, again, it would be a huge, huge figure. And three of my favorites, Daniel chapter 9. Many of you are familiar with Daniel chapter 9 where it was predicted to the very day when Messiah would be cut off from his people and they figured that out to be the day Jesus entered to Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. It was from the time of Nehemiah until that moment when Messiah came into the city would be 483 years from the rebuilding of Nehemiah's wall and that's exactly what happened. That to me is incredible. It also shows the uniqueness of the Bible. Another one of my favorites is in Micah 5 too, where it predicts of all the places on the planet where Messiah would come, Bethlehem, Ephrata. And we know that that's a, a great Christmas story. Psalm 22, another one of my favorites, where a Roman crucifixion is pictured referring to the Messiah and how he would be killed. The only thing that makes it really special is that Romans hadn't invented the crucifixion by that point. It wasn't until hundreds and hundreds of years later that that even took place. So the revealed prophecies are an incredible evidence of the uniqueness of the scriptures. The next one in our acronym would have to do with inspired teachings. It's a study all by itself. The only way to properly evaluate that claim is to make sure you read the Bible, allow it to speak for itself, to show the wisdom and the mind of God. The more you read, the more fascinated you will be. The more you will see how things fit together in such a great way. And it's got to be something that's inspired by God. No human being could put the Bible together the way that it was. One writer has said it's like a lion that does not need to be defended. Turn it loose so it can defend itself. 
It's like when they said about Jesus, no one ever spoke like this man and no one ever put together a book like this particular book. The next one is the power to change lives. Power to change lives. If we turn this meeting into a testimony time, and we're not going to do that tonight, but we would see evidence of the power to change lives. If I were to ask you, would you like to get up and share how something you read in the Bible or were taught from the Bible shaped your life or influenced you or empowered you to live the life you're living now? Everyone here who is a believer could pop up and share with us. There is testimony to the fact of the inspired teachings of the Scriptures and the power to change lives. All over the world are people whose lives have been dramatically changed. From the Apostle Paul to Charles Colson to Carson Wentz and Nick Foles. And let's turn to Nehemiah for our scripture right now in the middle. Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, and I'd like you to do something for a couple of reasons. One is because it's a, a nice custom at Alden Union Church now, but you'll see when we're reading why I've asked you to do this. Let's stand as we read this scripture together. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose And beside him stood, and there's a whole group of people that were there with him. I won't read all their names now. And then later on in verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Now let me stop there for just a moment. As he opened the book, he was raised and he was central. You may wonder why the pulpit is raised, why it's up here, why it is that we don't, sometimes come down here. Well, we do sometimes come down there, but why, why the, the Scripture is expounded from here? And the reason is because we believe in the centrality of the Word of God. And this is a visible way of seeing that for each one of us. It is central to what we're doing. Well, that's what's happening here. Ezra opened the book. Certainly, it helps people to see better. But in the sight of all the people, he was above all the people, and he opened it, and all the people stood And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And another group of people were there to teach. We pick it up in verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, 
Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And now Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. This is later in that same month, a little bit more than three weeks later. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Do you think the word of God didn't change their lives? Do you think that there wasn't some change that was going on in their lives over this period of time? This is an indication of what goes on when God's word is taught. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. They had been doing what God's law had told them not to do. They were intermarrying with some of the heathen. And now they separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Some of you are saying, I wish we weren't standing so long to be reading this scripture right now. It's not a quarter of the day yet. So don't complain until it's a quarter of the day, but they did some other things in the next quarter of the day too. For another quarter, another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood a bunch of other individuals who were there and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then some of those other individuals who had been mentioned before said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Thank you. You may be seated. But I hope you're still standing in your hearts. Because it is an awesome word of God that deserves all of our respect and our attention. The power to change lives. There's another thing that is included here, and that has to do with translations, if we're following the acronym. The Bible was the first book translated that we have record of. It's been translated and retranslated and paraphrased more than any other book in existence by far. Thousands of missionaries have given their lives to translate this book in the languages of some of the most obscure tribes and ethnic groups in the world. Modern language translations abound. The statistics are impossible almost to keep up with. But according to this organization that some of you have heard of called Wycliffe Bible Translators, there is need, Steve, did you say this morning how many more translations do we need? That's great. That's what I have in my, my notes. I'm glad I got that one right. There's a need for 1,600 more languages to have Bibles printed for. Now, if you take the usual estimation of 6,600 languages in the world, that would say that we're about 5,000 languages to the good right now. But the ones translated so far account for over 90% of the people in the world. So 90% of the people already have the Bible translated, or at least a portion of the Bible translated in their language. What a testimony that people are giving their very lives 
for the 10% that don't have that now and need God's word. We're getting along very well in the translations. Things are multiplying. Things are going very, very quickly. And we're thankful for people who are involved in Bible translation. If you want to encourage anybody ever to do something wholesome with their life, um, that's a good thing to do. You can't beat Bible translation. There's a strange little-known fact that there's actually a Bible translation in Klingon, the Star Trek language. And you think I'm kidding, because I kid something. That is true. There is a translation in Klingon. For some of those people who are sincere devotees to Star Trek, they've done that, and they, and they share in that. If you don't believe that, look that up. And I think some of you don't believe that. And just for your own interest, the goal is to have a Bible translation project started in every language by 2025. Stephen, you can correct me if that's changed, but by 2025. The Gideons International has now achieved distribution of the New Testament in more than 80 languages and placed copies in more than 180 countries around the world. That's more countries than IBM has computers in. And that's absolutely an amazing fact with regard to the Scriptures. Because the Bible is so special, it's why young men are willing to leave a career in the Navy with only five years until retirement to go to help to bring this about. We move on to the word uniformity, sometimes called continuity, but continuity didn't fit in my acronym. So we'll go with uniformity. The Bible was written over a 1,600-year period that covered 40 generations, 40 different authors, 40 authors from every walk of life. A couple of examples. Moses, a political leader, trained in the universities of Egypt. Peter, fisherman. Amos, a herdsman or shepherd. Joshua, a military general. Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king of Persia. Daniel, prime minister in the courts of Babylon. Luke, a physician. Solomon, a philosopher king. Matthew, a tax collector. Paul, a rabbi and tent maker. Not only 40 authors, but 40 authors from every walk of life who spoke three different languages, dealt with numerous controversial subjects, wrote from different places. Moses wrote in the wilderness. Jeremiah wrote in a dungeon. David wrote on a hillside and in a palace. Paul wrote inside prison walls. Luke, while traveling. John in exile on the island of Patmos. Others in the rigors of a military campaign. They not only wrote in different places, they wrote at different times. David in times of war. Solomon in times of peace. They wrote in different moods. Sometimes they were crying as they wrote. Sometimes they were on the, uh, the brink of a nasty defeat or a great victory. They wrote in different continents. Now, what would you expect if this motley group of people who were so different from each other with the languages, the places, dealing with controversial subjects, the kind of subjects that have to do with the most important things that there are what would you expect would come out of that? What comes out of a three-person committee? What would you expect to come out of this? You would expect it to be something that looked like a committee put it together. 
It couldn't be cohesive. It wouldn't be possible for them all to arrive at the same exact thing at the same time. Yet there's harmony and continuity and uniformity in the Bible from the very beginning to the very end. Someone has put it this way. The paradise lost of the book of Genesis becomes the paradise regained of Revelation. Whereas the gate to the tree of life is closed in Genesis, it is opened forevermore in Revelation. And as you look through the Bible, you find out that it reads as if it were written by one author. Why do you suppose it does that? Because it was. It was inspired by God the Holy Spirit And individuals, though they could use their own personalities, wrote exactly what they were supposed to write. The uniformity of the Scriptures. Imagine what you would have if you had just ten authors from one walk of life, one generation, one place, one time, one mood, one continent, one language, speaking on just one controversial subject. Once again, it would be a conglomeration. There'd be no harmony. I'm going to take a wild guess that there are some among us who don't believe that the Pittsburgh Steelers are going to win the Super Bowl next year. We can discuss that. I, I, I would guess there are some of you who think even that the Eagles are going to repeat. We could get into some good discussions. There's even among us a Minnesota Vikings fan. I'm not going to tell you who he is because I don't want to embarrass him, but he's up in the sound booth. Um, <laughs> There have been Dallas Cowboy fans in the church. What do you get when you get people together over one controversial subject? You don't get the uniformity and the harmony that you get in the Scriptures. We're moving on to R. The R in our acronym, the repudiation of criticism. The repudiation of criticism. I think it would be unfair if we tried to pretend that the Bible hasn't been criticized. It has been criticized. One quote, and you can tell this is an older quote because they don't use the word infidel too often anymore, but infidels for 2,000 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today as solid as a rock. One author says, no other book has been so chopped, knived, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified. What other book in classical or modern times has been the subject to such a mass attack as the Bible with such venom and skepticism, with such thoroughness and erudition? If you didn't go to Darby Cowan, that means scholarly. Um, And all this is on every chapter, line, and tenet. Yet the Bible is still loved by millions, read by millions, and studied by millions. Here's what John MacArthur said. Pseudoscience has tried to laugh the Bible out of existence. More than a century ago, Voltaire, the famous French writer and atheist, declared, 50 years from now, the world will hear no more of the Bible. But in that very year, while a first edition of Voltaire's book was selling for eight cents a copy, the British Museum was paying the Russian government $500,000 for one New Testament Greek manuscript copy. Only 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society used Voltaire's house and press to print Bibles. Thomas Paine wrote The Age of Reason more than 200 years ago now. In it, he attacked Christianity. He felt his arguments would forever destroy the Bible. He predicted that in a few years, the Bible would be out of print. 
He boasted, when I get through, there will not be five Bibles left in America. Turned out to be a little bit off in his count. It's been said that unbelievers, with all their attacks on the Bible, make no more impression than a man would with a toy hammer on the pyramids of Egypt. So the hammers of infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. And John MacArthur finishes the quote, Praise God for his word, united, unique, indestructible. Evidence from archaeology as we're winding down now. Another book that I could recommend to you is called More Evidence that Demands a Verdict, or you can, uh, you can get it in a combined version that Josh McDowell has written more recently. It's tough reading. You've got to want to read it. Um, the archaeology book is not nearly as interesting, but it's fascinating if, you, if you're able to weed through it. But he wrote More Evidence that Demands a Verdict, and it's all about archaeology, the confirming evidence that God's Word is absolutely unique. He has in that book a section on Jericho, that's fascinating. Just as it is described is exactly how the archaeologists have found it. Similarly with Sodom and Gomorrah, the same thing, particularly enlightening. One of my favorites in archaeology has to do with the Hittites, a warlike nomadic tribe that the Bible describes coming in and out of relationship with the people of Israel. It's never a healthy one, never a good one. It's a, always one that involves some type of conflict. For years, people would scoff at the scriptures saying, we can find no evidence anywhere that the Hittites ever existed. That's a made-up story that whoever these writers of the Bible were wanted to make it maybe embellished a little more than it, than it really was. But then, there's a great thing that happened with the Dead Sea Scrolls and other archaeological findings. We found the Hittites, and you know what? They existed at exactly the time the Bible says they did. They were exactly the warlike nomadic tribe the Bible says they were, and they were right in the place. Everything was, was exactly the way the Bible said. Evidence from archaeology. Another rung in the ladder that's putting together a unique picture of a book like no other. We also have the last one. Similar to one we've already seen, but not dealing with criticism now, but survival through persecution. This is when the attacks got more than just verbal or philosophical. The Bible has withstood vicious attacks of its enemies as no other book. Many have tried to burn it, ban it, and outlaw it from the days of the Roman emperors to communist-dominated countries to what's going on in our world this very day. Throughout history, Satan has used many means and men to attack the Bible. Diocletian, the Roman emperor, mounted the most concerted attack ever against the Bible. He killed so many Christians and burned so many manuscripts that he finally erected a column and called it Extincto Namine Christianorum, which means the name of Christians has been extinguished. He was mistaken. It wasn't long after that that the Roman Empire adopted Christianity as its official religion. And even though that was kind of a Pyrrhic victory, if you study history, it was a, a major development at the time. The uniqueness of the Bible as opposed to any other book. Somebody says to you, well, I don't believe the Bible. You can't use the Bible. You can say to them, well, 
What do you know about the Bible? Let me tell you a couple things about the Bible. And you might pick one of these things. You might tell them about the prophecies. You might tell them about the silver dollars in the state of Texas. You might sit down with them and and share a, a number of things with them. But the point is this. Don't ever back down if somebody says, I don't believe the Bible or they make you feel like, um, I'm probably kind of an idiot if I believe the Bible. I've picked up something in Sunday school days that the um, intellectuals don't believe any longer. Um, but that's not, that's not something you should ever back down from. Don't ever, ever lack confidence in your weapon because we're going to battle every day and we need to have, we need to have confidence in our weapons. Close by reading Psalm 1, 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. You cannot do any better if you're going to spend any time at all in any literature than spending it in God's Word. It's absolutely unique. Let's thank Him for it. Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank You for Your Word and thank You that it is unique and thank You that You, being a unique God, have given us something that shows us even of Yourself. Help us to respect it Revere it, love it, use it, apply it, and share it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.